Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, you know that this is um, a section of praise to God or worship, which we call a doxology. It's just from the Greek word and <clears throat> that means, you know, to, to glorify God. And so this is a section where Paul, like he always does, after explaining wonderful truths, he just interrupts himself and he stops and turns our eyes directly toward God. And as we're reading, you know, he guides us with these words to, to gratefully worship our everlasting God because of what he's done, because of who he is. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, it begins with the word, therefore, and what carries on through chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 really is the application of all that was said in chapters 1 through 11. All that doctrine, now chapter 12, application. But the door into the application is this worship of God in verse 33. So we're going to start in verse 33, read down through the end of chapter 12. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, you know, bottomless, you can't get to it, you can't find the edge. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or demonstrate what, it, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your, revenge, your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, may the Lord help us as we consider living sacrifices today. Well, let's turn our hearts and seek our Lord together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we turn our hearts and faces, our minds, our thoughts to you. We want to wrench them loose from the tyranny of self, the tyranny of the urgent, things that just seem so important until we back up and we see you and your mighty work spanning from eternity past to eternity future. Until we see our little lives, our marriages, our children, our grandchildren, this little church, which to the rest of the world, God, we would seem so insignificant. But we back up and we see our part in the unfolding of Christ's kingdom, of the uplifting and exalting of his name above every name. And so we come. And we ask that you would capture our attention. That we could be self-forgetful because we find someone so much more worthy of our thoughts. So much more interesting. God, we lay our days and our hours, our families, our thoughts and fears before you. You are our God. You made us. And every believer here can say, you are amazingly our Father. You saved us. We come to you and roll the burdens that so easily cling and tie up our feet and cloud our minds. And God, we roll them to you. We ask that you would do all that's necessary in our lives, in our homes, in our church, our town, our world, for Christ to be exalted today, that we could gladly, wholeheartedly participate in what you are doing, that we would really be able to say, as we 
pillow our heads on your mercy tonight. God, we were co-laborers with God. We're thankful for the friendships you give us that never end in Christ. We're thankful for a family. As imperfect as it is now, it will not always be so. We're thankful for our elder brother who is beyond description in his majesty, his supremacy, and his goodness. So, God, we pray, teach us today. Teach us here. Teach people everywhere that they gather today. Speak in a way that shakes lives that are falsely slumbering on the edge of destruction, that think they're fine, but they're not. Open their eyes. God, show them what you see. Break their heart. But God, do it for mercy's sake. We pray for those in our small fellowship who are struggling with reports from the doctor that alarm us, that make us step back and put everything into perspective. For those that are chronically ill, for those who have been uh, ill recently and isolated from other Christians and from corporate worship, God, would you do what we ask you to do so often? Would you noticeably, clearly be their unalterable environment that they would delight in your nearness whether it's in a sick bed or hospital. God, we pray that you would be the treasure of our hearts this morning and we would glory in you, boast in you, thrill our hearts by taking with both hands all that you give us. Fill us, God, with the best and help us to gladly Lay aside the empty stuff of us, of the world. Father, we ask that you would do this because this is your kingdom. It's your power that accomplishes it. It's your glory forever and ever and no one else's. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to return to the theme of worship that we started last Wednesday evening. So if you weren't here Wednesday, uh, you can go back and listen to that recording. In Psalm 57, verse 5, in the midst of looking at the sin of the world and the, and the peril of the believer, verse 5 says such a simple, uh, sweet thing. The psalmist writes, Be exalted, Above the heavens, O God, let your glory be above all the earth. When we read a verse like that, I think every Christian understands that sentiment, that desire, that determination. We want to see our God exalted above every other name that has been named. We want to see God be glorified above everything. And though that's the heart desire of a Christian, when our heart is healthy, there is this question, how can your life in a practical way be a part of that? And can your life be a part of that? So we're going to look at this issue of worship 
And today we'll look at how the whole of life is connected with that great desire. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Worship is an activity that is at the heart of every believer's life. It's easy for us to get um, focused on one of the other many uh, appropriate tasks that flow out of belonging to Christ and following his lordship and keeping his commands. But worship really is at the heart. When we think of the Old Testament, we see it demonstrated in so many ways. It's very helpful to read, especially in Exodus, where God bringing his people out of Egypt. You understand that these are God's people, but they have been surrounded by the lies of idolatry, Egyptian idols, for four centuries. So it's been a long time since the book of Genesis. After four centuries, God remembers his promises, his mercies. He brings them out through Moses' leadership. But as soon as he gets them safely away from Egypt and Egypt's armies, we begin to see in the book of Exodus that God sends every Jew to school, to theological school. God begins, whether it's by what Moses teaches, the law, uh, you know, moral, civil, ceremonial laws, or by very concrete object lessons, God begins to teach the people what kind of a God he is. And if he's that kind of a God, how is it that they have a relationship with him? And if they have a relationship with the only God that really exists, how would they approach him? How would they live their lives? The issue of worship, of approaching and expressing to God his worth, in whatever way he desires, is at the heart of so much of our Bible. And if we read through our Bibles, if you're reading through your Bible in a year, and you take a notebook, you could keep on one part of your notebook, you could say, uh, these are verses where God describes how we will approach him. Or God describes the worship that's rejected or accepted in, in the history of Israel. And then you could keep on other pages verses that describe other fundamental themes, the key doctrines of the Christian life, uh, you know, the other areas of loving God, like evangelism or serving, etc. But I think you will be surprised at how much God is devoted to worship. In the book of Genesis, for example, 31 verses are given to humanity to explain to us how God is our creator. Only 31. In Exodus, 243 verses are given to, to the Jews to describe how they should worship God. If you read your Bibles and you take a, a, a major fundamental doctrine in the Bible, for example, uh, the doctrine of the new birth, and you read the entire Bible and you mark every passage that talks about that new heart, that new birth, that new creation, the spiritual resurrection that occurs in every single believer. It's a wonderful theme, but I think you will find that it is dwarfed by the number of verses that describe worship. 
If you think about uh, other ways that God showed them the centrality or the, pr- the, the primary importance of worship, think of how God had the Jews uh, camp every night, right? So he brings them out and they set up camp, hundreds of thousands, all these tents in all these tribes, 12 tribes, countless tents, all these families, and each tent and each tribe was to set up every night in a particular way. And the way that God had them arrange themselves had a lesson involved. It's something you just couldn't miss. At the heart of the camp, of all the Jews at night, at the heart of the camp was the tabernacle where God allowed his glory to be manifested. So at the heart of the camp is the worship of God. And then around this camp, like radiating like spokes from the hub of a wheel, all around you have the 12 tribes, each tribe in its own place. Surrounding like a giant circle that heart, the tabernacle. And then inside each of the tribes, all the families that belonged to that tribe were to set up their tents. And every tent of every family of every tribe had to be set up with the opening of the tent toward the tabernacle. So whether it's nighttime or morning, going to bed or waking up, it is the, the significance of God and of their ability to worship God was at the heart of Israel. Today, I want us to talk about worship, and our goal this morning is kind of simple, but it's a bit, the the bar is pretty high, right? We may fail, but we'll try. Our goal is to begin to think of worship as widely as God thinks of worship. So we talked Wednesday night about some other aspects. We We asked some big questions Who can worship God? How do we worship God? Why do we worship God? You have to go back to Wednesday to see that, or this morning, you know, we'll expand too much. We'll be here all afternoon. This morning, we want to see not just how deep worship goes, the heart, or how high it goes, the cost. How wide does it go? How widely does worship go? Do we think of the act of worship as widely as God thinks of worship? And do we want to think of it as widely as God thinks of it? Can we ask the Lord, even now in our hearts, God, show me how far, how wide this duty of worship spreads in my life? We are familiar with worship, and so... It's easy to come to passages that talk about worship, well-worn verses that we've often read. We agree with them. Our hearts are in line with them, but it's not necessarily the case that our feet are walking them or our hands are engaged applying them. You can become so familiar with some aspects of the Bible that you're blinded to the fact that You're not really living on them. Well, when we looked last Wednesday at the basics of worship, we want to come this morning to this next issue. We want to come to the understanding of how wide worship spreads. Now, for that, let me go back to one 
one part of Wednesday. In Wednesday's talk, we looked at three words in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew of our Bible, that are often translated worship in our English translations. So the first word meant to stand in awe of God, to be kind of struck, astonished by who he is, by the gap between you and him. I know, again, I just wish, you know, I wish I could do it for myself. I wish I could take myself and shake me and say, yeah, you know those phrases, but do you, do you, do you know the realities? He isn't like anyone you will ever meet or have met. He is the uncreated creator. He is the holy other. He is in a category all to his own. No archangel, no preacher, no missionary, no blade of grass or beetle or solar system is in his category. He is completely separate. And yet he lets us know him. And as we feel that gap, we are astonished at him. We see his worth. The second word is the word for bowing down, which to us makes sense. How many times do you read in the Bible that men or women, young people, are brought in a sense into the presence of God and aware of God in an unusual way, they bow down. And we bow down. You, you may, in your own quiet times, kneel beside your bed or kneel when you pray. We bow down. It's not just a, a bodily action. There's the heart bowing down. Recognizing God's worth and being astonished at his worth, we gladly bow our hearts and lives before him. He is everything. And we are just glad that he has loved us. And we serve him. And that's the third word, serve. And that's the one that tricks us because we think, well, service, that's work. Worship, well, that's different. Serve is stuff that we're doing with our bodies. We're working hands, minds, feet. But worship, well, that's singing or praying or maybe even studying the Bible together. But the word serve is translated worship in countless examples of our Bible. We're not going to take the time to look at them. But I want you to remember that because that's the thing that takes worship out of the four walls of this room and spreads it everywhere in the Christian's life. I was recently reminded of a definition that Clyde Cranford gave in his book that we use for discipleship. If you haven't read that book, or if you haven't read it in a long time, it's got, it always surprises me. It's just full of gems. Clyde defined worship like this in the chapter on uh, praying. He talked about worship being a part of our prayer, and then he, just, then he defined worship. He said, worship is simply a humble preoccupation with God. All but the one object that captivates our attention flies away and is gone. Truly, to worship God is to be so focused on Him, so fascinated with Him, that we forget about ourselves. And we become like that song that we sing, lost in wonder, love, and praise. So that's what we want to look at. How does that spread 
to all areas. How do, does that affect the way we serve God? And does God accept that as worship? Again, on Wednesday night, we mentioned just a couple of things, but I said we wouldn't go very far because I wanted to talk about them this morning. But do you remember, in the Old Covenant, the promises of the coming of the Messiah and what he would accomplish include statements about worship and the spread of worship in the New Covenant far beyond the, the Old Testament building of a temple into every place. Things that once might have been considered very common and spiritually insignificant are now seen as holy, sacred, and spiritually valuable. Common everyday tasks. And I read from Zechariah 14, verse 20 and 21. Listen closely. In that day, in the working of Christ, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, so this is on the harnesses of the horses, little pieces of metal that would jingle as the horse walked along. All right, so in that context, it's their tractor that they work with. There will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Well, what's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, that was written on the priestly uh, garments, holy to the Lord. And so it's like saying to the people, when my son comes, and the gospel breaks the bounds of Judaism and spreads to all the world. Your worship will not be limited. The holy things will not be limited to a temple building. But even the things you use at work will be set apart to God. They will be as holy in God's eyes as the high priest's garments. But then he goes on. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house in the temple will be like the bowls before the altar. Now, both of those are religious things. There were some bowls, golden bowls, that were used to catch the blood of the animal and to carry it within the holy place and for it to be poured out before the Lord. And those were considered very holy or sacred or special. But with all the work that was done in a temple, the gathering of ashes and all of that, there were other bowls that weren't considered as holy. And so Zechariah says, when Christ comes, he will do things in and through his people that will make the normal common stuff of worship, the normal things of a church, as precious in the eyes of God as those extraordinary things. He goes on, and this is where it gets hard to believe. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem, that's people's kitchens, not the temple. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Whatever Christ comes to do as his work spreads across this world, as his work spreads through your heart, even when you go home and this evening you grab some leftovers out of the refrigerator and you throw it into a bowl that can you know, survive the, uh, the, the microwave and you put it in the microwave, that little microwave bowl is as precious and holy, is as much a part of the of the um, activity of worship as the things we read of in the Old Testament worship, the bowls that caught the blood. When Paul comes to the New Testament, we've, we've looked at that Wednesday, all right? So if you were here Wednesday, you can wake up now. Here's today. When Paul comes to the New Testament, in 
dealing with the Romans after 11 chapters of doctrine, explaining all that God has done and how that affects a believer. We read in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul's application. And it's just what Zechariah was talking about. But he just takes that promise in the Old Testament, he turns it into a command. And he says it this way. Therefore, because of what God has done in Christ, I urge you, brethren, Christian, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The most reasonable, the most spiritual thing that any believer can do is when considering what God has done for you to wake up and to devote all of the life to God, for his pleasure, for his honor. And God sees it as worship. Worship includes for the Christian every aspect of life that can be dedicated to God. Obviously, that marks out sin. We, we can't say, well, you know, I, I feel like I deserve this in life, but I can do it as unto the Lord. Well, You'll have to go to the scriptures and test that. But if you consider the hundreds, the thousands of little tasks you do, the little choices, the thoughts, the desires, the, the responses to your kids, the words to your spouse, the way we act at work, the way we drive to and from, the way we eat, the way we dress, the way we come to church, the way we play on the ball field, all of it. The tasks that make up our lives as Christians can be dedicated to God as expressions of worship. Everything that can be offered to God can be a part of a life that is a living act of worship, a living sacrifice. Well, I want us to look at two things this morning quickly. One is, how could that be? And number two is, what are some specifics? How could it be? We go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis. We know that God created man and woman, placed them in a perfect paradise, and gave them uh, a, a covenant, expectations. There were things that they were to do. There were things they were not to do. And there were expectations from God as they walked in obedience or did not walk in obedience. In this paradise... In this perfect place without any aspect of sin's ruin or sorrow or pain or confusion. What made it better than all of that, what wasn't there, was what was there. And we read that God met them and walked with them in some expression of his glory. The presence of God brought near and sinless humanity thrilled to belong to him. Until the deceiver comes and says to Eve, and Eve passes on the idea to Adam, instead of the joy of belonging to such a God, why not have the joy of being a little God yourself? And believing that lie, everything is lost. The creator-creature relationship is bent and warped. 
And from that point forward, what we see in humanity, what we call sin, really is nothing more than men and women and young people getting up every morning, getting out of bed and saying, I think that I will live this day based on my worth. I feel that I am so significant, I have a right to do what I want to do. Now, when the Bible or religion appears to line up with what I want, I want a happy marriage, I want happy children, we go to church, we raise our kids in church because it seems that that will be beneficial. So because it benefits me and I'm worth living for, then I'm religious. But where the Bible doesn't seem to benefit me, where the commands of Christ seem to go against the grain, where it looks like following Jesus or trusting God or believing what he says will steal things from me that I think I need for happiness, I am worth so much in my eyes, I am not willing to follow Christ there. So living for our own worth, we may own a Bible, we may not own a Bible, we may read a Bible, we may reject the Bible. We may go to church and join a church. We may stay home from church. The common principle, the root of humanity is that we are self-impressed. We are aware, falsely, living under the delusion of our great worth. And of course, in contrast, while we may admire God at a distance, we may say many nice things about him, We are not waking up and living for his worth. That's not what grips us. When we go to work and someone treats us unfairly, it's not the worth of God that's gripping us. It's our worth. When we come home and our spouse says something that's a bit sharp and we're angry, it's not the worth of God that guides our responses. It's our worth. When our parents don't let us do what we want to do, when our friends are unfaithful, when church is boring, it's not God's worth. It's it's my worth. And Paul goes so far to say in Romans 8 that all of creation, all the galaxies, not just the Milky Way, all places on planet Earth, all times, all things in creation are groaning under the weight of humanity's self-delusion and rebellion. But God from eternity past has designed a a reconciler, a, a rescuer who will come and not just save individuals, washing us from our sin, clothing us in his righteousness, making us able to draw near to God, to know God again, to be right with God in our creature, creator relationship. Instead of it being turned upside down where our worth is what we think of, it's right again. When we're in Christ, it's God's worth that we think of. But it's not just that. Christ has come and been entrusted with the restoration of every part of the universe. And Romans 8 says all creation yearns. The the Greek there is like stretching out. We would think of little children trying to see over the counter, you know, on tiptoes looking for the return of Christ. Because when he returns, all will be put right. Christians will be put right. Creation will be remade and those who continue in their disregard of Christ's claims will be put right in the sense of placed under that throne. Ephesians talks about it. It's all through the Bible. 
One part of that restoration is the rescue of individual Christians. And in the rescue of an individual Christian, something happens not just for you, the judicial change. You know, legally, I'm not what I was before. I'm not in the standing before God legally that I was prior to embracing the gospel. I am now in the camp of his friends, his child. I am made right with God by Christ, or what the theologians say, constituted right, made right by his righteousness being placed on me, and then I am declared right. And it is complete justification. But there's also that wonderful work within by the Spirit changing our moral character little by little. He makes us alive. We are alive to God. Our, our minds understand what the gospel is about. Our hearts delight in the truths of God and the things of God. And our, it's like our feet are freed. Our hands are freed. Our senses are freed from sins, tyranny, free to devote ourselves and all that we are to him. In that great rescue, the transformation spreads everywhere. That means not just all of you, because all of you is being saved. The mind is now engaged in things that are worship. The thoughts you think can be acts of worship. You can be getting in your bed at night and you're laying there, perhaps you, you have trouble falling asleep, you're just kind of staring at the ceiling in the dark, you can turn your mind to the things that God says and turn your mind toward God. And it can be as precious to God as any act of worship ever was in the Old Testament or new. Your heart and its delight in God is engaged in worship and satisfied. Your will, your choices, your responses are part of your worship. All of you. But it's not just all of you. It's all of life for you. Think of it. You belong to a God who alone is existing in every moment unchanged. He's the eternal God. Old writers say it this way. God calls all times now. We think of back then or what's coming ahead, past, present, future. God, every moment is now. He is in every moment. And that means you can offer him your love, your worship in every moment. You don't have to wait for Sunday morning. You don't have to wait for sunrise for a quiet time. You can be busy running from one thing to the next. And with a simple expression of your heart, you can turn your soul toward God and tell him, God, I love you. I'm grateful. I want to live for you. So as I'm busy, busy running from one thing to next, I'm running from the screaming child in the living room to the crash in the kitchen, I can turn my heart toward him. And I can say to the God who is in every moment, who calls every time now, you are here. And I want to devote all of this to you. Not just time, every place. God is, we say, omnipresent. He exists everywhere. 
at once. He doesn't have to travel. There's no place that you can say, God can't come in here. There's no place that we can say, all of God is here, but he's not over there. God fills and overflows every edge of creation, every thought, every imagination. Every time we draw a barrier and we say, I think God could fill all of that. And then after our best effort to create the biggest picture in our mind of creation, God just flows over it. If you want to believe in a multiverse, I don't think I would agree with you. But if there were a multiverse, God would fill every moment and every place in a multiverse. Infinite God filling every place with his person, not just part of God, all of God. And so that means every place a Christian goes, you can do what you do, offering it to God right before his face. And it is as truly an act of worship as the high priest once a year going into the holy place. All of you, all of life, it's not that you're doing a lot of new things as a Christian. We do new things. We stop a lot of old things that were rooted in self. But that's not the whole picture. We're not just saying add a lot of religious things to your life and that means there will be, a more, there will be more worship in your life. It's everything that can be offered to God legitimately can be offered as an expression of worship. It's not necessarily doing new things. It is doing what God, the normal tasks that God has already given you in a completely new way or doing the old things for a new reason. Why did you get dressed the way you got dressed? Why did you eat what you ate? Why did you drive the way you drove? Why did you talk to the kids the way you talked to them this morning when they again are gonna make you late for prayer meeting? Why, why, why? God cares about the why. Is it because you are awestruck, shocked at the worth of God? Your heart is bowed toward him gladly. And so what you're doing in the present moment is being done because of God's worth. How you do it, why you do it, completely changes. Now, that sounds nice, but for all of life to be an act of worship, for your life to be a living sacrifice that God finds pleasing, you will have to destroy something. You will have to daily put to death what A.W. Tozer called in his wonderful little book, The Pursuit of God. He has a chapter talking about the, the sacred and secular divide. There is, because we're human beings, we have a physical body, we live in a physical world, there is a natural tendency to feel that the things we're doing with our physical body in the everyday tasks, those are not nearly as important as the things we do spiritually, the heart and the prayers and the Bible study even, and the gathering for worship. Religious things, we think, those are sacred and those are wonderful and those are worth doing. Secular, stuff that we have to do nine-tenths of our day between sacred things, between religious things. Those, we think, those are kind of necessary evils. But in the scripture, it is not true. It is a mirage. It is a fiction. It 
it is a lie that for the Christian in the new covenant, most of your life is busy doing things that have little value and the few things that have great value are the religious things. So quiet times, corporate worship, small group studies, family worship, evangelism, giving, praying, singing, serving believers, we say those, those things have everlasting value. And we're glad to do them. We're glad to be involved in them. We, you, you may have recently done those things in ways that were sacrificial, that cost you. And someone might say to you, I really appreciate that. I mean, that was a big deal. That was really helpful. But if you're a Christian, how do you feel? You think, look, I'm glad to do that. It's a joy when the Christian's heart is healthy and the worth of God is in front of our eyes. It's a joy even to do hard, sacrificial things that are religious. But what about the others? Going to work, raising a family, interacting with people that may or may not be Christians, housework, yard work, organizing the garage. I've never actually done that, so that's a theoretical point. Exercising, putting kids to bed, eating, sleeping, doing laundry, cleaning up again after another meal. Those things we think, well, those are just things that fill up the majority of my life between the important things. I mentioned that Tozer in this book spoke about this, and I, I just can't say it as well as Tozer did. And by the way, when I look up the theme of worship, so I go online and I go to, a, you know, months ago, I, I go to a website that I know I can trust the books that are for sale there, and I look up worship, and you see all these books on worship. And they're by good guys, guys that I would think are biblical. But you do know that there are people that can say true things about worship, but if you followed them around, you I don't think you would think that worship was the thing that gripped them all the time. It's just one of the true things they're teaching on. So I remember getting a book by a, a modern Bible teacher who is really good and has helped our nation, helped Christianity over the last 40 years. But he wrote a book on worship and he said, worship is the most important thing. And I think, I know that's true and I know he knows it's true, but I don't think if I followed him around, I would have been able to discern that. Then I pick up Tozer's book, and Tozer, who isn't as good a Bible study as the other man, whose theology isn't as clear as the other man's, he says, worship is everything. And I think, yes, I know that's true, and Tozer knows that's true. And I think if I followed Tozer around, I would see it. Tozer had a lot of flaws, but the preoccupation with God was beautiful. I'll give you one example. He was supposed to preach at a giant conference in Chicago. He was the keynote speaker. So not like conferences we have where there's 12 speakers. He's the speaker. The time comes for him to get ready to go to Chicago, to go, he's in Wheaton, uh, sorry, he's in Chicago, to go to the Civic Center or the church or where, wherever the, the conference is being held. And he's the keynote speaker and he's getting ready and he's preparing his soul and he felt as if the Lord drew near in an extraordinary way and he didn't leave and go and preach. He just stayed on his face in his study, worshiping the Lord. Now, Tozer was not a lazy man, and he wasn't, you know, uh, a man that was silly. He knows that that would bother people, that he didn't show up and preach when that was announced that he was coming. So there was a good reason. 
The people at the conference didn't know the reason, so when Tozer doesn't show up, they're afraid that he's in the emergency room somewhere, and so they're calling around, and finally they get his wife, and the wife says, oh no, he's still here, and what do you mean he's still there, and did he forget the day, and Tozer said to them, the Lord drew near in an unusual way, and I wasn't going to leave him to see you. I don't think that that's what Tozer did every time someone invited him to preach. If he did, I think that I wouldn't believe it, but I can't help want to know what Tozer says about worship because it really was for him something that captured him, that filled his life. This is what he says about dividing life into sacred and secular tasks, things that are really important, things that are just common. He said this, one of the greatest hindrances to internal peace, which the Christian encounters, is the common habit of dividing our lives into two areas, sacred and secular. As these areas are conceived to exist apart from each other and to be morally and spiritually incompatible, and as we are compelled by the necessity of living to be always going back and forth from one to the next, our inner lives tend to break up so that we live a divided instead of a united life. And so he says the result is that for most Christians believing this lie, you really do feel that most of your day is wasted because it's just doing stuff. And it's the time with God in religious activities that's valuable. And Tozer says it's a lie. You can read that chapter, that final chapter in his book if you want. I'm tempted to read all of it to you, but that won't help us. Let's turn now to the question, in what ways, in what specific ways does the Bible mention that your life can be a living sacrifice and what you do in the common, what we used to think of as secular, ordinary things? How do non-religious things become acts of worship. Well, if you have your Bibles, hang on, right? Here we go. I'm I'm, I'm in the middle of a decision here. I don't know whether to give it to you or to not give it to you because we have a lot to look at. So that means not give it to you. I'm going to run through the list. We'll look at it Wednesday night. There are a number of places in Scripture where Paul, in particular, explains to the Christians how their lives can be worshipped in what they're doing in everyday activities and service. Now, let me call your attention to something that is, I think, really instructive. In the New Testament, you remember I mentioned there were three different words for worship. There's the, you know, being amazed at God. There's the bowing of the life or body the soul toward God. And then there's this act of service. In the New Testament, in the Gospels and the book of Revelation, it is the word bowing in the Greek that is most frequently used to describe worship. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, bowing. They worshiped him. That is, whether in body or in heart, they bowed themselves to God. In the book of Revelation, bowing. Now, I don't think it's hard to understand why that would be that way because 
in the Gospels, they're confronted with the God-man. And there are times where God does things through his son in such a wonderful way. They just fall on their face. But especially in the book of Revelation, what, what, what would be a better expression of the worth of God than for John as Christ draws near to him on Patmos or the scenes of the great work of Christ to come as he's ruling over all things. We see people bowing, bowing, bowing. But then you come to the book of Acts and to the epistles. And the word bow for worship is almost never used. Instead, it's the word for service. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a chapter that says, Let's, let me explain this to you. But I think that there are you know, some things that are obvious. One that I think is most helpful is that you know, as Judaism is no longer the the only arena of God's mercy and as it's spreading across the nations and as the temple is no longer the place where they're going to worship, the Gentiles and the Jews throughout the Roman Empire need to know your worship is no longer confined to one people, special days, special places. It has expanded into every area of your activity as a Christian. Anything you can offer to God, it's worship. So instead of using bow, he uses the word, Paul uses, Luke uses, the other writers use the word serve. As you are busy doing all the normal things of your life in school, at university, you know, at church, at Walmart, in the car, it's all now able to be a part of worship. I'll give you the specifics that Paul gives and then we'll hit them Wednesday night. Number one, how you love other believers is seen by God as an expression of worship because you're loving them because of who they belong to. And the worth of God, which fills your heart now instead of your own personal worth, makes you glad to forget yourself and serve them. Romans 12, the whole chapter is an example. Ephesians 5, walking in love together, maintaining the unity, forgiving, being patient with each other, is described as an act of worship like Christ's life, which Paul says was a pleasing aroma. As he gave himself for his people, each day doing all the Father gave him to do, it was a pleasing aroma rising up to the Father. And then Paul turns right to the Ephesians and says, and you too imitate God and your life of love to other believers, especially the kindness, the mercy, the forgiveness, it rises up to God like the incense from worship. Three, laying down your rights for the good of others, whether believers who are weaker or unbelievers who are watching. And that's where in 1 Corinthians 10 and in Romans 14, we see Paul saying, look, when you eat food, be careful. Don't eat in a way that spiritually offends and damages your witness. So he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. But the context is you have people around you that look at your freedom as a Christian and you want to be careful to deny your personal rights 
for their spiritual good. And God sees it as worship. Fourth, again, loving within the body, Colossians chapter 3. Fifth, even giving to Christians who are needy or giving to the ministry of the gospel. In Philippians 4 verse 18, Paul describes that gift from the Philippians to him when no other churches were giving, the Philippians were, and he says that was an acceptable thing in God's eyes. It's the word that we find in Romans, that your life would be acceptable and a living, acceptable sacrifice. That was an expression of worship. Why? Because when you look in your bank account and then you looked at Paul, you realize that the worth of God would, would guide you to take from the bank account and pour it into the kingdom. And doing that for love of God, God was pleased. Now, there are a lot of specifics. We'll talk about those Wednesday. Let me give you the principles. If it is something you can offer to the God of the Bible, if it's something that is not tainted with sin, if it is something you can offer to the God of the Bible, an everyday task, if it is that kind of a thing, it can be done for love of God, devoted to God, based on the worth of God, and it is worship. Another principle. If it is something that you do for God, so it's something that can be offered to God, and the reason I'm doing it is I am doing it for God, in the sense of expressing his worth back to him. Because of who you are, I want to do this as unto you, not as unto me. I want you to be pleased with the way I work. You remember that Paul says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's part of worship. Working hard at your job so that people will see the worth of your God because you gladly pour your energy into your job, not for what the boss will say when he's watching, but what God will say because he's watching, Ephesians 6. So we do our work as unto the Lord, our work excels, our work ethic is good, and people around us say, why? Boss isn't watching. You don't have to do it like that, do you? And you can say in a humble way, no, I'm not doing it for that boss, but I have been saved by Christ, and I want to give all that I do I want to do it as unto the Lord. It's worship. Why are you doing it? His pleasure. His glory. Let me give you some practical applications. If we're going to destroy the sacred secular divide and bring all appropriate activity in our lives under the, in, into the realm of what is holy and precious, then it's going to take hard work. First, you're going to have to continue to cultivate such clear views of God's worth that even if we didn't have this sermon in the back of our mind, just knowing the worth of our God, we would naturally want to do what we're doing for him, not for us. But you can have the sermon outline from this morning in the back of your mind and not cultivate clear views of the perfection of God's person and the, and the greatness of his activity 
And with a small view of God, a shriveled view of his deeds, the sermon outline will do you no good. There's no way you would devote your life to a God that's little, that you're bigger than. So if you want to do a practical thing that will flow out into every area of life being offered to God as worship. Start with reacquainting yourself daily with him as you're reading your Bible. You don't have to be any, in any specific chapter or book, but as you're going, don't miss those places where the Bible pulls back the curtain and you see him. And that grips you. Another simple application. Tozer points out in that chapter, and I do want to read you that portion. He points out in that last chapter that these old lies that, you know, working at home and singing at church are both worship. They're not both equally valuable, but they are both expressions of worship and God is pleased with both. Tozer said, it's hard to put those old lies to death. So he gives this advice. He says, seeing this truth, it's not enough. If we would escape from the toils of the sacred, secular lie, the truth must run in your blood and condition your thoughts. We must practice living to the glory of God, actually, determinedly, you know, all through the day. God, I want to do this as unto you. Not just the concept. By meditation on this truth, by talking it over with God often in your prayers, by recalling it to your minds frequently as you move throughout the day, a sense of its wondrous meaning will take hold of you. The old painful division will go down before that restful unity of life. The knowledge that we are God's, that he has received all and rejected nothing will unify our souls. We can meet this temptation, he says, successfully only by the exercise of an aggressive faith. We must offer all our acts to God and believe that he accepts them. Then hold firmly to that position and keep insisting that every act of every hour of every day and every night be included in this transaction. Keep reminding God in your times of private prayer that we mean every act to be for his glory. And then supplement those prayer times, you know, your quiet times, by a thousand thoughtful prayers that, you know, that shoot up as we go. By a thousand thought prayers as we go about our job of living, let us practice the fine art of making every work a priestly ministration. Let us believe, let us believe that God is in all our simple deeds and learn to find his pleasure there. Well, coming to God, gripped by God, bowed the heart, and then whatever comes next, we do it for him. If you feel that that is, a, that is a task that you couldn't do, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? 
when he was brokenhearted over the Corinthian church. And in chapter 2, he, he feels this question, is God going to work there? Are they going to depart from the Lord? And then he says that wonderful thing, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And then he says this, manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are a fragrance. And do you remember Chuck told us? Fragrance there is a different word than just aroma. It is a sacrificial smell. Your life, hoping in God, even in the hardest heartbreaks of the Christian life, God will manifest through you the smell of his son to himself. He's pleased. To the world, you are a living sacrifice. And God and the world notice. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, Paul writes, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.